Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about gastrointestinal cancers with Dr. Stacy Stein. Dr. Stein is Assistant Professor of Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Let's start off uh, by telling me a little bit about what you do and what cancers does your practice include? So we actually see patients with cancers uh, spanning the entire GI tract. So it's actually several different diseases. Um, So that includes patients with uh, cancer of the esophagus, the stomach, the pancreas, the liver, uh, the biliary system. Uh, colon cancer, rectal cancer, and anal cancer. So it's several different diseases. Wow, that's a lot of territory to cover. Are are all those cancers very similar, or or are there really differences between them? So actually, there's there's some commonality, but there's quite a few differences. Um, Obviously, you know, anatomically, surgeries are different, options for radiation therapy, and those things are often dictated by anatomy, but a lot of the differences are also at the molecular level where we're able to offer different therapies based on the mutations of the different cancers that we treat. Hmm. So how do patients find out they have a cancer in their GI tract? So, you know, often this may come to the attention of uh, the patient and then to their primary care physician first. Sometimes, you know, it can be because either they're having difficulty swallowing, having pain in the abdomen, um, maybe having difficulty with uh, going to the bathroom or noticing blood somewhere in the GI tract. And then usually uh, the patient may either be referred for imaging or to a gastroenterologist that can perform a scope that would um, visualize the cancer. And then usually after uh there's evidence of a tumor being somewhere in the GI tract, they're referred to us for evaluation. Hmm. And would they be referred to you as a medical oncologist, or are they usually referred to a surgeon? How does that work? Yeah, so sometimes that depends on who who saw the patient first and what they think may encompass the treatment. But in truth, whether the patient was referred to us first or to surgery, um, we all work together in a multidisciplinary fashion. So uh, we actually do have multidisciplinary clinics where we try to have uh, the patient come and see us and the surgeon um, I also treat a lot of patients with liver cancer. We also have a multidisciplinary clinic where um, the patient sees me and a liver doctor at the same time. So we try to make it as easy and as comprehensive as possible on, you know, on the initial visit. So if I were a patient referred to this one of these multidisciplinary clinics, I might see more than one physician, both a a surgeon and a medical oncologist? Yes. So sometimes it doesn't always happen on the same day, but if we can, we we try to do that because I think it it gives people 
more information at the same time and we're able to uh, make decisions quicker and expedite a treatment plan quicker. And would I come out the same day with the treatment plan? Sometimes, yes. We try to have, uh, depending on whether someone had their work up here at Yale or at another place, we try to have all the um, uh, information together. We meet together um, at conferences where uh, it's not just us and the surgeons, but the gastroenterologists are present, the radiologists, the radiation oncologists, the pathologists, and we look at all of the uh, imaging, if there's any biopsies, and review um, the history together and try to come up with a plan, um, you know, based on everyone's input and the information that we have. Hmm. And, and I guess depending on the kind of surgery uh, that's going to be performed if there is surgery, depending on whether you're taking up part of the esophagus or um, losing some of your intestine or whatever. There may be um, adjunctive supportive care that might be um, needed, help with swallowing or or ostomy bags and things like that. Is that part of it? Too? Right. So you know, so there's a so there's a lot of people that are involved in the care of our patients, um, and often the treatment, even when it is surgery, we're often giving other treatment prior to the surgery to help prevent recurrences in the future. So for diseases like esophageal cancer or rectal cancer, that may mean giving chemotherapy and radiation prior to the surgery. Hmm. Uh, for certain other cancers like stomach cancer, it may involve just chemotherapy prior to the surgery. And actually, we're looking at a clinical trial now of giving chemotherapy for patients with pancreatic cancer before their surgery to try to decrease the um, rate of recurrence. Um, but then also, we have a lot of other people involved in our patients' care, as you mentioned. So we have um, dietitians, social workers, care coordinators. Uh, there may be people in um, involved in uh, care of um, if someone needs an ostomy or if they have any drains or those kind of things. Um, so there's a lot that goes into, you know, care of patients. Sometimes patients need nursing services at home that we set up. Um, and, you know, a big goal of our care is always to try to decrease the inconvenience that all these treatments cause and the side effects, the pain associated with it, you know. Um, Wherever the cancer is in the GI tract, there's often difficulty with eating and digesting food. And so it's a, it's a big part of the care of our patients to work on optimizing their nutrition um, and, you know, making things as easy as possible. Yeah, it sounds like it could be easily very overwhelming for patients and their families. It's overwhelming. You know, a cancer diagnosis is always overwhelming. And so... Uh, you know, while it's always frustrating when people get that information to have a plan in place, we try to expedite that uh, as much as possible because that that initial period of time is very anxiety provoking until a plan is in place. And even then, you know, dealing with the uncertainty of the diagnosis and how it impacts people's ability to work or the symptoms that they have, you know, it impacts a whole family. Um, and it's very important to be aware of that and, and try to address it as best as we can. So are there psychological services offered as well? Yes. So we have, uh, we have 
social worker and care coordinator. Uh, there are therapists available. And actually, uh, Smila will be having a psycho-oncology um, division uh, soon as well, which I think will be very helpful. We also have support groups for our patients. Great. Um, you had mentioned a clinical trial in pancreas cancer, I think you said, mm-hmm. where you're giving chemotherapy uh, up front. Uh, yeah, I know uh, pancreas cancer certainly has a reputation that, of being the worst cancer or one of the worst cancers. And I think really uh, people approach that, hear those words with, with a lot of trepidation. Are there reasons to start being more optimistic about pancreas cancer? Uh, well, I think that... Um there have been a couple of regimens recently that have extended the lives of people with pancreatic cancer. And while it's been incremental progress, I'm very hopeful that we are going to continue to see more progress. Hmm. Um, so there's a couple of different areas that we've been focusing in. One is um, a clinical trial that Dr. Jill Lacey uh, is running of giving um chemotherapy called the Fulfirinox regimen, which is aggressive chemotherapy that we give to patients with metastatic disease to give to patients before and after a surgery when they have curable disease. And we're hoping that by doing that, we could decrease the risk of recurrence. But also, we're looking at molecular targeted therapy as well. Uh, We know, even though it's only a small subset of patients, there are some uh, patients with pancreatic cancer that have a BRCA mutation. And if people are familiar with that term, they usually Sounds like a vegetable. It. Yeah, <laughs> BRCA. It's it's BRCA, and actually, it's it's most people know about that if they've heard about it in relation to breast cancer. Yeah, that's, that that's where I'm familiar with. Right, it, BRCA. So, absolutely. So, um, so it's very well known that some women with breast cancer carry this gene, and that it could be, you know, something passed on uh, in their family. Um, But actually, there's also an association with pancreatic cancer. And so uh, we will be opening a trial here of giving patients Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, which has been used in uh, other patients that, that carry this. And we're hoping that this will help benefit that group of patients with pancreatic cancer as well. I'm guessing our audience has no clue what a PARP inhibitor right. is, Stacey. So I know. So, you know, there's so much molecular therapy right now of looking at the specific mutations that are in our patients' cancers. And um, what we're looking at is really at the molecular level to say what proteins are not functioning well in this cancer? What proteins are supposed to be there and aren't because of the cancer? What proteins are supposed to be there at low levels and are at very high levels that should not be there in the cancer? And we're trying to target therapy directed at those specific proteins to try to increase or decrease their levels to make them more like a normal cell. And this is just, this drug is just one example of a drug like that that may help um, kill these cancer cells. And that's given with chemotherapy, is that right? Right. Right, because I guess with with the BRCA mutations, it has something to do with the way the cells repair their, the damage to the DNA that the chemo does. Right, my correct. Understanding, right? right. And the PARP inhibitor impacts that. Right. And, and so there's reason to believe that at least for the patients with a BRCA mutation that this may benefit them more than just chemotherapy alone. So will that trial be restricted to patients with that mutation? Correct. So, yes. wow, we're really getting very specific now. Right. Compared to the days when anybody with pancreas cancer or whatever cancer could 
all be enrolled in the same trial. Absolutely. And so it's very important that when we're thinking about treatment options for any of our patients, that we start thinking about the specific mutations in their cancer. And that often tailors the treatment to that specific patient. And I could give you a couple of examples of that. There's another protein in breast cancer called HER2. And about a third of women with breast cancer have too much of that protein. And the breast cancer group has already come up with several antibodies now targeting that protein. And The people in GI oncology thought that was completely unrelated to us until a couple of years ago when we found out that about 15 to 20% of people with um, cancer in the esophagus and stomach also have too much of that protein. And so we've had clinical trials now of looking at that protein in in some of our patients and seen some benefit. Um, So that's another, you know, area where we're looking at specific mutations to target therapy. It's also very important in colon cancer. Um, We know that patients with colon cancer, um, about half of the tumors have mutations in something called the RAS gene. And that is going to be a very important target coming up in the future. And we have clinical trials for these patients as well, whether they have the mutation or do not have the mutation. We're now starting to target therapy uh, toward that type of tumor as well. Hmm. You know, that's fascinating. And, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking that not every patient has access to a tertiary or quaternary uh, cancer center like uh, Yale Cancer Center in Smilo or one of the other great cancer centers uh, in the Northeast. Um, do patients who are treated at other places, are they? do they have access to these molecular tests? I mean, what should patients be yeah. advocating for? What should they be thinking about? They're so overwhelmed with their diagnosis. Yeah, it is. It's very, you know, it's very difficult when you're getting all this information to sort out what what is the right treatment. And, you know, I would say, so for some of these tests, they've been around a couple of years. They're already approved by the FDA and they're available to everyone. So every patient that has a gastric cancer or esophageal cancer should be tested for that HER2 protein. Every patient... Um, with colon cancer and rectal cancer is now being tested for a specific RAS protein called KRAS. But as we're getting new information, we're really trying to stay on the cutting edge of doing more than just those tests that the FDA has already approved. So we actually have larger panels here that we're testing patients based on specific diseases. And I think that you know, it's a good idea at some point to be seen at a large center where you could have some of that other testing done and at least then be able to go back to the community with that information. All right, we're going to want to take uh, up on that, uh, that thread right after our break, but for now we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about treatment options for patients with gastrointestinal cancer with Dr. Stacy Stein. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. Only about 5 to 10% of all cancers are inherited, and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. 
Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The Yale Cancer Center Cancer Genetic Counseling Program is a new frontier in the fight against cancer. The program provides genetic counseling and testing to people at increased risk for hereditary cancer and helps them to make informed medical decisions based on their own personal risk assessment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Stacy Stein. We've been discussing treatment options for patients with gastrointestinal cancers. Stacy, um, before the break, we were talking about um, uh, making sure that you had access to certain standard molecular tests performed on your tumor biopsies. Um, and you had mentioned that it's always a good idea to get a consultation at a specialized center. Uh, and I, I certainly... Uh, agree with you uh, in my experience that's been very important um, for my patients um, it sounds like uh, at least the the one thing patients should feel like they can do would be to ask their surgeon uh, will this be processed for whatever important gene testing is appropriate so something people should feel empowered to ask or? right absolutely I think that you know, well, one, you should always feel comfortable asking questions to anyone in your healthcare team. It's hard. And it is hard. It is hard. But but I think people are doing it. Certainly my patients um, always come in with good questions and they do their own research. Um, but you're not a very scary doctor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, um, another, so another uh, focus of mine is, is liver cancer. And I would say, you know, that's another area where it's so important to have a multidisciplinary approach you know, uh, to look at each patient. And our goal actually uh, for our liver, our weekly liver conference is to really present every new patient, whether they are referred to uh, a liver specialist, a medical oncologist, an interventional radiologist to the transplant group. And we, you know, we all uh, look at the patient from our own perspective and try to come up with a plan that's best for each patient. I know that's it's very um, confusing area for many lay people. Um, I know many patients have had breast cancer, uh, which and then they find that there are tumors in their liver and they think they have liver cancer. Is that right? So uh, it, that is a little bit confusing. So the... Uh, there are many tumors that can spread to the liver. Just by the nature of the blood flow uh, to the liver, it's very common in several different cancers to have tumors form in the liver. But it's actually not liver cancer. It's metastatic disease from where the tumor started, whether it was in the colon or the breast or somewhere else. And the treatment that they get is primarily still focused as either breast cancer treatment or colon treatment. When I mention liver cancer, well, actually, there's really two different types of cancers you could get in the liver. One is, I think of the, so I think of the liver as a tree, and I think of it as big, big vessels going into the tree like a tree trunk, and then they branch out, branch out, branch out, and at the end are the leaves, and the leaves are doing the work. So if there's a cancer that happens in what I call the leaves of the tree, or the hepatocytes, that's 
a, a liver cancer or we call hepatocellular cancer. If it happens in the branches of the tree, anywhere from the big, from the big trunk to the main branches to the little the little branches that go right up to the leaves, that's called a cholangiocarcinoma. And that could actually happen in the liver or outside the liver. And so that's kind of a biliary cancer. Biliary. Easier to say than cholangiocarcinoma. Yes, cholangiocarcinoma, we call it biliary cancer. So there's hepatocellular cancer, which we call HCC, or cholangiocarcinoma, which is biliary cancer. And they're really treated quite differently. Hmm. And uh, so just going back to that, confusing thing. If I, if I were to have a colon cancer that spread to the liver and you were to do a biopsy, it wouldn't look the same as one of these HCCs, right? No, it would, look, it would look just like colon cancer, but, but being taken out of the liver. So, you know, it's very important um, when someone's first diagnosed that we do have a biopsy uh, so that we do, we are sure where that cancer is coming from because the treatment is really dependent on that information. Are there any patients who are at particular risk of de- developing one of these primary liver cancers? Absolutely. So it's very well known that there are certain groups of people that are at risk for developing HCC. Um, So patients that get cirrhosis, which is scarring of the liver that happens over many years, are at high risk for getting liver cancer. And that can happen from a variety of reasons. Most commonly um, in the world, it's from hepatitis B infection. Mm. But, uh, and that's, and so most of those patients are in Asia. In this country, it's more common for people to get cirrhosis either from a lot of alcohol use over many years or from hepatitis C. And I have to say one of the most exciting advances in this field recently is the number of new drugs for treating hepatitis C. And I really hope that this impacts us to having a lower a lower number of people diagnosed with liver cancer in the future. Now, is that one of the hepatitis viruses that we have vaccines for? So we have a vaccine for hepatitis B, and B. All, right, okay. and all babies in this country are diagnosed, or excuse me, are vaccinated as babies. So the rate of hepatitis B for people born here is low. But we do not have a vaccine for hepatitis C. And so it's been a real problem in how to prevent people once they get infected with hepatitis C and they continue to have the virus in their liver of how to treat them. Huh. So these people would know they had it, right, because they get jaundiced and yellow and stuff, or no? So, so we want to prevent it from getting to that level. And unfortunately, most people don't know that they have hepatitis C, and it's a real epidemic in our country. So many people from the baby boomer generation... That's me. And Steve is raising his (laughs) hand right now, um, may not realize that they're infected with hepatitis C. So the recommendation now is anyone in that age group, if they've never been checked, to have at least just one test to make sure that they do not have hepatitis C Hmm. because we have treatment for it now. And so we really want to identify everybody. If we wait until they have cirrhosis, we've really missed an opportunity. Hmm. And you think that hopefully if we treat the hepatitis C, there will be less liver cancer. Absolutely, because that will prevent them from getting cirrhosis in the future. And it's that chronic damage to the liver over many years that becomes the, you know, 
allows for these mutations then to happen in the cells in the liver to form cancer down the road. Okay, so all you fellow boomers who are out there, make sure at your next uh, general physical exam to ask if you've ever been tested for hepatitis C. It sounds like that's really good preventive care. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so you've mentioned that the, the liver cancers also... Uh, have a multidisciplinary approach. Is surgery a part of that therapy too? How can you take out the liver? Right. So, well, there's a couple of ways we do that. So one is that if, if the tumor, if the cancer and the person's liver function are within certain criteria... Um, they may be eligible for a liver transplant. A transplant for cancer? A transplant for cancer. And it's not for every patient with liver cancer. They have very strict guidelines for this. But for some patients, absolutely yes. And does that work? It does. Um, If they're within certain criteria, they have a very high cure rate. And then also you've removed that person's diseased liver because they usually also have cirrhosis. Wow. Yes. So it's very important that anyone... Um, with a new diagnosis of liver cancer, really be evaluated for all these options to make sure that they're not being passed over on any potential option, especially because this is a curative one. Yeah, I'm sure you can't get that kind of treatment at every hospital. No, that's only at certain tertiary centers. So fortunately, Yale does have a liver transplant program that is very active, and they're part of an evaluation for all the new patients that we bring to conference Um and uh, they do a very comprehensive evaluation to see if someone is potentially eligible for that. Hmm. So what about people who can't get the liver transplant? Well, sometimes they may still be eligible for surgery where just part of their liver gets removed. And that, and you know, we try to offer that for anybody who may be eligible for that because that can also be potentially a cure of removing the cancer. Hmm. And for people who can't have that? So it depends. It depends if the tumor is still only in the liver or if it's spread outside. If it's only in the liver and the person uh, has pretty good liver function, um, that the cirrhosis is not too advanced, they may also be eligible for treatments that we call loco-regional treatments. And um, those are done usually by an interventional radiologist. So they're a very specialized kind of physician. And what they do is they actually look to see where the tumor is in the liver or sometimes multiple tumors, where the blood su- supply is to those tumors. And they're able to go in. They actually put a needle into someone's groin, thread it up into their liver, and are able to sometimes direct either um, heat or chemotherapy directly into the tumors. And there's another option also of something called Y90, which is where radioactive beads are distributed into parts of the liver to help control the disease as well. Wow. That sounds very high tech and the the heat sounds kind of painful. I don't know. No. So we um, we try to be very careful about how these procedures are done and who they're offered to, to make sure that we're not damaging the liver further. Um, But we often, you know, these treatments are usually not curative, but they usually help. Hmm. Um, And so it's an important part of the full evaluation to offer these treatments as well. Gotcha. And are there any new uh, molecular therapies for liver cancer or are there chemotherapies that can be helpful? So right now there's one chemotherapy that's approved by the FDA for liver cancer, and that is serafinib. Um, But we're 
always looking for new uh, drugs also um, for liver cancer. Unfortunately, some of the more recent clinical trials have not shown a benefit, um, but we're, we're always looking for new drugs. We're starting to work on um, molecular studies for liver cancer. You know, a lot of people right now, when they have liver cancer, they get diagnosed just by their MRI and without a biopsy. But we're always, uh, I'm always interested in getting a biopsy on patients because I think that just helps us to advance the field further to have a better understanding of what mutations are happening in this cancer and what, what we can offer. But I have to go back and say, I think the most important thing is prevention and to really um, start further back and try to prevent the cirrhosis because we really know that that's the main risk factor for liver cancer. Hmm. And are things different for this other kind of biliary cancer that you talked about? So that's a little bit different. And uh, the treatments, unfortunately, um, that's very experimental doing a transplant for those type of of patients. And uh, most transplant centers do not offer liver transplant for cholangiocarcinomas. Uh, but it is sometimes possible to do surgery and remove the tumor. Uh, so we always have a surgeon involved in our in our planning. And for patients that are not eligible for surgery, we do have different chemotherapy options. Um, we have uh, standard chemotherapy that we use. Uh, we're also participating in one uh, trial that's through a large cooperative group in this country looking at something called a MEK inhibitor in patients with this type of, of cancer. And that's just another uh, type of drug that's targeting a certain protein that, that seems to not be regulated well in this type of cancer. Dr. Stacy Stein is Assistant Professor of Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.